Hey, J. Crew, in honor of Stephanie's wedding, we're trying not to swear, but God help us, the, the spirit might overtake us and we might let out obscene whoops of joy. So be forewarned, this has been your obscenity warning. Best letter ever. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. A year or two ago, I listened to Unorthodox for the first time on a road trip with a nice Jewish boy who I'd been dating for one year. We've listened to your podcast every week since then. Last week, that NJB, nice Jewish boy, asked me to marry him. A day or two after we got engaged, he turned to me and said, oh my gosh, are you engaged? And I said, oh my gosh, thank you. And for the last week, it's been our running joke. My fiance completely surprised me with an incredibly thoughtful proposal. So I thought it'd be fun to surprise him too. Could you give Ethan Gross a mazel tov of the week this week? Thank you, Mindy Rappaport. <laughs> Ethan and Mindy, <laughs> Ethan our and very Mindy. first unorthodox couple. <laughs> Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, still wearing white in those last days. Before you got, you got a few more days. Got a few more days. Um, in honor of Stephanie and Ben, this is our wedding episode. I am joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. Thank you. Are you engaged? <laughs> I am. <laughs> still. The joke's going to end soon. I know. Are you uh, married? What are we going to say? And uh, tablet scene. We're saying... Expecting yet? Oh, Expect- <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> and tablet senior writer Liel Leibovitz. Hello, hello. Our Jews of the week are you ready for this this rogues gallery? Anita Diamond, author of The Red Tent and The Jewish Wedding Now. Roberta Grossman, director of Hava Nagila, the movie. Orthodox sex therapist and longtime wife Batsheva Marcus. And Jen Glantz, CEO of Bridesmaid for Hire. And then special additional Jew Rabbi Amichai Lau Levi. All of them going to be here. To talk. We celebrating. Yeah. We talking simchas. A whole wedding ep. This is this is the the audio version of Anita Diamond's new book, <laughs> The Jewish Wedding Now. This is all you need to listen to while planning your Jewish this wedding. Is, right. This is all you will have to send to all of your friends who are getting married. This oh, will become... Oh, oh, my God. You're getting married? <laughs> have I the podcast for you? Something borrowed, something blue, <laughs> something podcast made by Jews. Wow. That's exactly that was right. good. You like that? Uh, so, what's up, Jews? Stephanie? Guys, I now know what enough rough is. Enough rough. I, I had one this weekend. Enough uh, rough. How are you saying it? Yeah, uh, no, it's enough. It's an. It's funny. So it's an enough rough is when you have a cat and then you also get a dog. So it's an rough. But my but Sid always calls it a bow wow because she first when she first heard it she thought they were saying woof woof. It is confusing when why, it's when you're called to the tour. Yeah, but before I mean, your the, the, wedding. the phrase is a confusing one. It's, call, it's from German for to be called up. Auf Ralf. Auf Ruf. Auf Ruf. The Auf Ralf. Yeah, the Cohens threw us an Afraf at uh, Temple Beth Shalom in Livingston. It's my um, favorite temple in Livingston. It was actually, you know, my parents came, my cousins and their friends and family came. It was so sweet. Like I was, you know, I'm kind of like cynical and hardened on the inside. Um, but it was so nice. And we got called up and we we practiced. I practiced the like Baruch, Baruch and Adonai, Hambarah. And you have to like, because that's how I learned to sing the Torah was like with that with that intonation. Baruch and Adonai, Hambarah. Um, so yeah, so I practiced that all night. We had one um, before our wedding. Uh, Alan, the father-in-law, threw us a, a thing uh, at Sons of Moses on the Lower East Side, which was amazing because is that like the Sammy's Romanian? Of- yeah, I mean, we were the youngest people there by sixty years. I mean, it was it was awesome. There were Yiddish speakers there who were like, I don't know who these kids are, but it was no Enofrof is a nice is a nice thing. Uh, so what else? What's going on? wedding? The wedding set, right? You have no, there's no last minute business. 
I hope not. Um, the wedding is like, yeah, so this will air on Thursday. and then Are you going to do the part where you say, if anyone has any objections, speak now or remain silent forever? No, but I really want to play this Taylor Swift song, Speak Now, because that's like so funny. But Ben's like, that's <laughs> literally about stopping a wedding, like Taylor Swift stopping a wedding. And I was like, if Taylor Swift stop th- stops this wedding, it is not meant to be. Like, I actually think it's part of some Christian liturgy, The if anyone yeah, has any reason why these two cannot be joined. Thing, I think it's like the Book of Common Prayer. I don't think Jews do that, Liel. Yeah, there is something about it there where you think like it'd be so hard not to say so like the like yeah. to break that silence would be so exhilarating but also it's like when there's a silence you assume that it's like a, a i feel like in like a call and response and yeah you're like yes i'm in I've, been, like, I've certainly been to weddings where i wish they'd said that because somebody had to say something and those are the ones that ended in divorces i'm very good yay wedding episode at, i'm very good at being at weddings and knowing if it's going to end in divorce so i hope i yours won't yeah I well, don't then, think then we'll so. do we'll do a mini episode live from stephanie's wedding i'll, I'll bring a little recording device like, hey, totally Mark. <laughs> oh my god! Hey, so how, of, how's your week, Mark? My, oh, my week, my week was well. As you know, so I was uh, went to Martha's Vineyard with the extended fam, and who who else was on at the opposite end of the island? But unorthodox podcast host Liel Leibowitz, who came over and schmoozed on my porch in Oak Bluffs for a little while. Guys, why were you both on Martha's Vineyard? I thought you were Jews. Be- we were <laughs> on two very different vineyards. Mark was literally in the goyishiest place in America. Well, that's where he's the most comfortable. It was it was ridiculous. It was like walking into the heart of wasp darkness. I was mere yards from the Vineyard Vines outlet. One, one afternoon with Duo Dickinson, and he's like uh, yeah. on Martha's That's Vineyard. right. He, he, he has duoized himself, uh, whereas I was, you know, in, in Aquina, uh, home of the, uh, the wild, the free, and the uh, very, very wealthy. Uh, and it was a very different vibe. Because that's the Jewish part of the island. Do you know how you know it's a Jewish part of the island? Because they've made it dry. These geniuses literally banned alcohol to keep the goyim out of their half of now the this vineyard. Now, this is your is theory, right? I, I'm not sure there, it holds up historically, but I like it as a theory. No other explanation. So it's what did you do? Of, how did you stay there? Oh, I brought my own liquor. <laughs> you, you brought your own? I should oh, say, yeah. by the way, that that although I might have been in a more goyish part of the island, Liel's kids were taking horseback riding lessons, and oh, wow. mine were like splashing around in waves. Yeah, the, and correct. the totem pole, that's higher. So you're still there, Liel, right? I am now in beautiful Provincetown, Massachusetts, my wow. beloved second home. Are you reading the, the Home in New England, the pre-order? <laughs> The Duo Dickinson's I, book? I'm actually uh, literally rereading Moby Dick, which is very apropos, oh, and uh, just reveling in it. It really is the greatest. This is my American moment book. to say I couldn't get through Moby Dick. I've never read Moby Dick. I'll More own embarrassingly, that one on air. I've never read Great Gatsby. Well, that you could knock off this afternoon. And I know, it's but yeah, it's like a thing, and like Ben really likes it. It's like it comes up a lot that I like. Jay Gatsby was in the crossword two days ago or oh. Saturday. So you got that. So um, now. You're going to the mikvah this week, right? I am going to the mikvah on, yes, on a, a week from the air date of this episode, well, Thursday before the wedding. To prepare. With, yeah, I'm going to Immerse NYC with Sarah Luria, who's, I think she was on our our Yom Kippur episode last year. Yep. And I just sent her an email and I was like, hey. Have you ever mikvahized? No. And now, Leo, you have, right? No. Oh, I'm and the only one of the, the mikvah? Th- I'm the only one of the three of us who's who's immersed in the mikvah. Wow. I would, figures. Did you do it on Martha's Vineyard? No, I did it for a column for the New York Times. Ho, ho, and there was a photographer there taking, there are nude pictures of me immersing in a mikvah. They're they're hard to get. But, Hold on, Googling. Yeah. So. <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited to go to the mikvah. I'm nervous because, I mean, I feel good in that there's definitely a lot of people who have not been to the mikvah before they go for their wedding. And that like, I would not be the first person to not know what I'm doing. But I'm very nervous about not knowing what I'm doing. You just say a prayer and immerse. 
and I dunk know. three times. It's, but it's, I'm always like, am I doing it wrong? Am I going? Am I under for too long? Like I, I worry about all those things. And like, is she judging me? Does she think that I'm? Oh, oh. So it's like an internal monologue. But I'm really excited. I think it'll be very moving. I think it'll be yeah, very I think moving. it will be moving. Um, that's Leo, what scares me, Leo. What are you wearing to Stefan? <laughs> that's what scares you. Might this might be that's the like beginning at, of at a the process? Opera, I felt like all these. I was just like, this is so touching, and all these people are here, and I was like, oh, that's what I'm gonna oh, feel. Our little Stephanie is coming all to Judaism. Gr- all grown up. Um, would it be would it be gauche to segue to news of the Jews from this touching wedding talk? No, I'm like kind of sick of talking about me, and I feel like we're going to do it all episode. Then let's by talk. We, I mean me. Then let's talk about Conan O'Brien. He was touring Israel for his show Conan Without Borders, and among other things, he visited with Prime Minister Netanyahu and fed his dog uh, two cucumbers. His 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 bad dog. His bad his dog. dog is the Cat Stevens of dogs. He's like in trouble, right? He's like a it, diplomatic issue. Kaya, Kaya, she, the dog. she is. Kaya bites, but she did not bite Conan. According to the Jewish press, as of November 1st, the Idaho Department of Correction will start offering a kosher menu to state prisoners following a settlement uh, with the ACLU of Idaho. ACLU, we defend neo-Nazis and Jews seeking better food. U.S. Magistrate Judge Candy Dale is going to supervise the settlement. They will be serving kosher certified food in prepackaged and sealed servings. But there is going to be another segment to the lawsuit where a federal court will decide the compensation, the pain and suffering that the, that the Jews are due for the year in which they were forced to defile themselves by eating religiously prohibited food. This is our version of reparations. <laughs> Basically, we get like a kugel for every year we suffered with Wonder Bread. They get a little extra TV time. Um, Jesus. Uh, also in the news of the Jews, Billy Joel took the stage at Madison Square Garden wearing a yellow star uh, in solidarity with, you know, Jews. Uh, and in the in this post Charlottesville world, his daughter, Alexa Ray, uh, the mega talented Alexa Ray wrote on Instagram. Was now, that sarcastic? I really think she's like, a, she's a good voice. Does she? Yeah. I, I can. You okay? You call you called me out on my shit. I don't know. I've never listened to her. Oh, you sing. just assumed that she's like because she's the sign. You know, she's Christy Brinkley and Billy Joel's daughter. She's yeah, like, I know. Can that. you imagine? Well, of course, the pressure? I know that. But she's no. She's had like a. She's had a very public struggle with you know, body shaming and depression and. Can I be honest? Can I have a totally frank moment? Yeah, you don't I've, care. I've disliked her ever since her nose job because of how I feel about plastic surgery. All right, you are so. There we go. Another Mark Oppenheimer opinion gem. Okay, we should make the list. Anyway, she wrote on Instagram about her father. Now this is how you do it. That's my pop. Proud Jewish New Yorker through and through. Represent. Stand strong. Hashtag hell yes. Hashtag New York state of mind. Hashtag proud Jew. Hashtag New York strong. Hashtag fight for love and inclusion. Hashtag diversity makes America great. Hashtag I haven't written a song since 1987. (laughs) No, that was Alexa Ray though who wrote that. It wasn't. It was. Billy. But listen, Liel Leibowitz, you have written in the pages of the virtual pages of Tablet about your dislike for Billy Joel. Are you willing to reconsider a little? Uh, I have uh, in the in the same virtual pages of Tablet. Uh, you know, I've I've called Billy Joel, uh, and I don't regret this, the Donald Trump of American popular music, a shameless con man who, you know, kind of uh, preys on people's emotional nostalgic fears. Uh, and insecurities by delivering an approximation of what they think is uh, is like a, a, a talented, capable man. Uh, but any other artist uh, who would have done this, this yellow star bit, I would have said this is remarkably stupid and offensive. But if you're remarkably stupid and offensive to begin with, 
and you're expressing yourself in a remarkably stupid and offensive way, you're just being yourself. It reminded me of the, the Hasidic story of the little boy who couldn't read the prayer book, so he just went into shul and whistled to communicate with God. This is Billy, you know? <laughs> if you're Billy Joel, this is your way of understanding the world. Good for you. Billy Joel, I wrote this in tablet. I'll say this on the air. Good for you. Come over for Shabbat anytime. Leo, that was like the worst compliment anyone has ever given. <laughs> I'll repeat all these horrible things I think about you, but you did this stupid thing in us because you're yep. stupid. You be you, Billy. Don't go changing to try and please me. You never let me down before. Uh, I have two live shows coming up. Can I be, oh, yes. can I be about me? Uh, September 16th, I'll be speaking at Barnard Temple in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. Oh, Franklin it's, Lakes. That's where my just, camp friend and college friend is from. Which one? Well, she is a camp friend, and then we ended up going to college together and becoming college friends. I just was giving you a chance to shout out to her. Oh, Rebecca Sheehan. She's actually due. She's giving birth. The, she's not coming to the wedding because she's like, I'm, she had to call and be like, first so of all, I'm pregnant. And normal. After we send out the save the date. So yeah, shouts to Rebecca Sheehan. Mazel tov, Rebecca. Uh, so I'll be speaking at Barnard Temple in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey, September 16th, that evening. And October 18th, I will be giving a public lecture at West Virginia University. So I love doing this stuff. Book me up, people. Yeah, you really like your life from, on the road. I like my life on the road. You will from, literally go anywhere for money. I will go anywhere for money. Like, I will speak to neo to a neo-Nazi convention. But that you would actually like for that. money. Like you would be good at that. That would probably be a helpful thing. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bring peace to, you know, to the next free speech rally. Uh no, I will speak anywhere. That is my thing. That is my calling, and I'm excited. So I would love nothing more than if some of our listeners turned up at in Franklin Lakes on the sixteenth. And I would love to meet our seven listeners in West Virginia. Or or by the way, some some of some of your co hosts may t- may turn out as well. That would be awesome. I won't because I'll be on my honeymoon. And oh where are you going? I'm going to Japan and then Hawaii. I would skip Japan and go to Hawaii. I okay, thank you. Um, I'm really excited for both. Have, okay, well, have a great time. Um, thank you. You guys want to hear what a final, never to be repeated fundraising pitch sounds like? One where this you you have the knowledge going in that I'm not going to bother you about money next week. This is what it sounds like. It sounds like we're at about forty eight or forty nine percent of our fifty thousand dollar goal, and if we don't get there, we don't get there. But I'd love to get there. Because then we would be financially secure for another year. And um, and maybe you could just all think about what you would pay per episode. Would you pay a dollar per episode to hear us? Would you pay two? Would you pay 50? Whatever you pay, go to tabletmag.com slash donate. Get your tote bags, your laptop stickers, your free study session with Liel. I mean, all, the, the dinner with us. You've been so generous. I can't thank everyone, but I do want to thank some of you. So I've chosen the accounting firm. Of Malcolm Cohen, Anonymous, Barry and Margie Rothouse, Liel fans who are not sci-fi fans, Michael McFarland, Judith Barrel, Jacqueline Mayo, Starlight Izzy, Anonymous, Carla and Michael Foyer, N. Corican, Audrey Pepper, Jeffrey Klein, someone who gave in honor of Alan Perez, Alicia and Aaron, Anonymous, Sue Parker Gerson, Berg65, Esther Grant, and Elon Praskovsky. So to all of you Anonymous out there and the Elon Praskovskys and the Sue Parker Gersons and just, I mean... Gosh, and Malcolm Cohen, we need more Malcolms. If everyone named Malcolm who listened to us gave us $2,000, we'd be rich in the coming year. Thank you so much. Uh, again, I'm not going to, you won't hear from me again about money for a long, 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 long time, um, but we still need to raise half of the goal. So this is the week, and um, I'm just going to leave it in in God's hands and yours. But seriously, thank you all for listening. This um, this extended audio family that we've all created together has brought me um, an enormous amount of, of pride and gratitude and a lot of fun 
uh, Tuesday mornings in the studio. So thank you, thank you. Back again with us, we have one of our favorite, favorite uh, returning guests. Top seven or eight. Top, yeah, definitely. Top five, at least. And um, fans. And fans. Yeah. <laughs> even better. We have Batsheva Marcus. She is the clinical director of May's Women's Health. And she is also the co-host of The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast discussing sexuality and Jewish law. Welcome back to the show. I'm so happy to be back here. And, and this time I was smart. I brought you presents. You did? Yeah, because oh. I felt really like, I felt like everybody else brings presents. I know. What's I'm... wrong with us? We're such like schnurs. Yeah, is that the right word? Right. I'm not sure Schnorrs. we can open them. Schnorrs. I'm not sure we can open them on air, but you guys can decide. Well, you know, oh, we slice no, it out after them Bring them up. Bring, let's have okay. them. Let's, what do you mean you're not sure if we can open them on air? We're, They're all a little different. What are presents for if not unboxing audio? Yeah. All right. This one is for Stephanie. <gasps> oh my purple. gosh. <laughs> oh my god, it's really heavy. There's a lot of tissue paper involved. So Stephanie's is a little different. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> I, so I got I, all of you got vibrators. One is for Stephanie. The other two are for your wives. Although you could use them too, but mostly, what, are you guys blushing? You're so. I'm not blushing. This is and that's wow. coconut oil, Stephanie, which is like the best lubricant. Coconut and, oil, a lush wand, passion. And do you have the guide to getting it on already? I have. I do not. It's the guide to getting that it on. That is the Bible of sex, and you should have that. See this. I this I like because this is not like. A bowl off my registry. Like, this is actually, (laughs) you're being real about life and what happens after the wedding. So, you know, you come at this from a very sort of specific perspective. What are some of the things you have dealt with with people in the lead ups to their wedding and the the aftermath? I mean, this is sort of for especially observant people. This is happens at a young point in your life. Um, Sometimes you're inexperienced. And like, so what have you seen? What have you what have you dealt with most? The range is so huge that it's hard for me to say, you know what I mean? And I I see patients or clients from every walk of life. It's not just orthodox. And I think it all boils down to everybody wondering if they're normal. I think that really is, you know, is what I do or what I like or how I function normal. And that it kind of all boils down. I mean, we do see a tremendous amount of a condition called vaginismus, which I could speak about for an hour, um, where you have trouble getting the penis in the vagina. Either it's painful or you can't do it at all. It's like a brick wall. And for some reason, a lot of Orthodox women have that. Well, is it related we to an- is it related to anxiety? It's usually very high anxiety levels, exactly, but not necessarily anxiety about sex, anxiety about life, right? So Indian women also, you see it. So one could make lots of arguments about why it's very curable, but it it creates lots and lots of problems, as you can imagine, especially because people don't want to talk about it and don't look for help. So we see that. um, But, you know, there's just such a gamut of issues that I I hate to say, like, the going into the wedding issue. So what is your sort of general advice for for young women as as they? So my general advice to everybody, men and women and young people heading into a marriage, for sure, but everybody is don't fall into the myth that sex stays the same for your whole life. It just doesn't. And I think we all, we're kind of sold this bill of goods unintentionally that you're going to get into a relationship and you're going to have sex and however you're having sex, that will continue. Maybe it'll get a little worse or less often or less exciting, but that's kind of the way it will be for the next 10, 20. Most of us can't imagine having sex 50 years later, although I hope that you do. And that that is such a horrible myth because 
to keep your sex life going, and I really know that it's possible, it takes work and realizing that things are just changing all the time and expecting them to kind of take care of themselves and just be the way they are, like throwing some seeds into the ground and just saying like, okay, now I'll have this beautiful rose bush at the end. It's just absurd. And But I think that's how people address it. Nobody thinks, oh, I need to really think about my sex life. Things haven't been great lately. What's going on? Let's address it. Let's talk to the doctor. Let's talk to the therapist. Like that's keeping your sex life alive for your whole life. It's a project. Uh, as this is a wedding episode, and I, you know, we we keep our relationship very professional here. I know nothing about whether any of my colleagues uh, about their their partnering <laughs> their sexual over the life. Years. I really don't, and and you know that's that's probably as it should be. But in, generally speaking, people approaching their weddings, let's say they're religious, um, oftentimes they're. Of they're not having sex before marriage. Sometimes they're having sex before marriage, but it's not intercourse because that's, you know, they've decided that's a halakha. Oh, good uh, for you, you know. for making that distinction. Right. I was about to jump in and say sex and intercourse no, no, no. is anonymous. Okay. Come on. You know, I'm the, I'm the, I'm Dan Savage's biographer. Yeah, right. So, but um, do you think people should be having, to, should people be having sex before marriage? Should you marry people you've never touched? Those are two totally different questions. Well, you take I think. them both, Okay, great. Okay. Babe. So this is – I get stuck on this thorny place, right? Because I'm an Orthodox Jew and I really do believe in halacha. And halacha really does state that you should not have physical contact prior to a marriage. Um, having said that – Did you, by the way? I don't ever talk about my personal life I on air saw. either. <laughs> just, just ask. Um, so having said that, I can tell you that I see t- – I c- that was the one curveball question. I did not expect you to She's ask blushing. that. I've actually never seen you like She's blushing. That. <laughs> but I'm blushing. I'm blushing on behalf of my husband. You have to understand that, right? Like that is the, the deal between us. I don't talk about our sex life. Anyway, we mostly don't. Um, anyway, um, so – so having seen having seen many 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 religious um, couples, the the, the ultra orthodox ones, the Haredi ones, you know, the ones who meet one time or three times before they get married, most of them have not had contact until the wedding. But for most of the modern orthodox couple, there has been some kind of level of contact. And um, I have to say, I, I I think that there's an issue. Like I'll be honest with you, when I see a modern orthodox couple and they've had no physical contact at all prior to the wedding, a little bell goes off in my head. Um, because one of the things I have seen is that very often people use religion as a smokescreen to cover up um, other issues. It's a very convenient smokescreen. They're not that attracted imagine. to each other. They don't like each other that much. Or there's a lot of tension. They're scared to death. Right. They, yeah, exactly. There's maybe a million things going on. But um, so I certainly, you know, I certainly don't say to people you have to have physical contact before you're married. But I will say it is really difficult for people to not have a sense of whether there's good physical chemistry there if they haven't touched each other. Now, that's very different from not having intercourse or even oral sex or, you know what I mean, or, or manual sex, using your hands on each other. There's there's gradations. Um, I, I do think that it makes it really complicated. Again, that's not to say that people can't get married without having touched each other and not have a fabulous sex and have a fabulous sex life because I've seen that also. But I think very often it's a cover-up and it's a problem. So if I see two couples, for example, like if I see a couple who's not Jewish or not religious and they've had a lousy sex life for three years and they get married anyway and then, you know, one of them says, well, I didn't have, you know, I she, she's not into sex or he's not into sex at all. So I have a little less sympathy because I feel like you knew really – You knew that. You knew that going in. You thought maybe things would magically change, but you knew that. That was like part of the rules of the game. But when I see a couple and this has happened where it's really clear to me that the woman, for example, because I tend to see women, has no interest in sex and the 
husband thought it, she was just being super religious by not wanting to have physical contact. And then he gets married, and now he – it's not to say that that's not solvable, but it's complicated, um, and their sex life may never be the way he wants it to be. Um, that makes me feel sadder because that makes me feel like they got into a situation that he didn't know about. Sorry, not to be now. Silence. No, 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 no. That's really fascinating. We're just, we're just having a moment of silence when, for those couples. When, <laughs> when, when you're talking about sort of all of this, what I'm thinking of is the thing that's made me sort of giggle throughout the, the wedding planning process, with it, which is the Yehud room. Yes. And could you tell us a little bit about that traditionally? Sure. And I'm going to actually try to reframe it for you. So maybe okay. it won't make you giggle anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we're not using it in the traditional sense. Okay, got it. Well, no. <laughs> Do I actually know what the non-traditional no, sense no, of Yehud the, the, is? Well, I think what you It involves my hairdresser. I know, I know what you mean. And my dress bustle. Well, for, 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 for those people who are not Jewish or not as Jewishly learned, start at the beginning. So Yehud is sort of the moment of alone time when right after the, the ceremony, generally people are danced in to a private room, the two of them are left alone for a certain period of time. That period of time really is de- was built on the idea that they could actually have intercourse at that point, that they could consummate the marriage at that point. For a long time now, and I'm not a historian, people have not been having intercourse in that room. They just, for couples who've never touched each other, that might be an opportunity for the first time to kiss each other, or um, why is Mark laughing? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing like the Haredi guy who's like never touched, I mean, it, just touching her face is as good as intercourse for that guy. Like he's got about and one might, minute in him. And and might, <laughs> you, could you say you can stroke her hair? That's all he needs. It's really, it's like 10 minutes, right? Yeah. Like Correct. It's, it's exactly. It's like seven to ten minutes. I think I don't know exactly, but I think there is a halachic time period there. But Satmar, it's seven and a half. Gerer, it's eight. <laughs> Are you joking? You're seriously no, that? I'm oh, okay. <laughs> um, but but <laughs> Liel's laughing. Um, but but Stephanie, here's the deal. Like. Honestly, that day of your wedding is going to be the most insane. It's going to go by so quickly that you're not even going to notice it happen. I'm just going to tell you now, as many times as you can sort of take a deep breath and look around and say, wow, this is happening. All these people love me. See, I'm tearing up. This is bad. (laughs) Anyway, but – All these people either love me or they're business associates of my father's. Right. right. The ones who are cuddling and close usually are the ones who love you. But that moment in that room – I am crying. I I love weddings. Anyway, the um, even in theory, um, the moment in that room when you are just together, just the two of you, to be able to take five minutes alone or with your hairdresser, um, you know, is just, I think that's an, a lovely, lovely thing. I mean, to me, though, hearing what you said. Do we have tissues? But Trevor, there's tissues, right? But hearing what you sort of said about how important connection and, and sort of de- developing those relationships are, then I think about a couple who maybe never has had sex before and then goes into this room and like does it like quick and dirty. And Well, I don't think people do that. Like that is that that's what I that's what I think of no. when I think of it. I, I think the You're odds it's of somebody been many decades yes. since that was the thing uh, yeah, with, I think in the, any community. I think the odds of somebody getting off her wedding dress, figuring out where exactly the penis is supposed to go, and and yeah, I think that ain't, ain't happening. I mean, I could be wrong. I, you, you'll get letters, I'm sure, but I don't know of anybody. Right. Um, but while you're here, can you tell us a little bit about Nita and Mikva and just sort of the ways in which sure. those play a role in you know the monthly lives of of, of Jewish women? Can, it's just because for our listeners, maybe don't know that, maybe do, maybe do it well, themselves. So I can tell you as somebody who works on the sex with the women of, who have sex lives from all different religions and all different walks of life, Judaism has the most complex uh, I, I hate to use the word invasive, but I'm going to use the word invasive um, and most complicated set of laws regarding um, sex. I guess it's true probably about food, too. So anyway, yeah, you um, know, when you came on, th- sorry to interrupt you the first time I said, you know, Judaism is like sex positive, isn't it? And you're like, 
no. <laughs> I, I've had this idea that we, we, you know, we're all cool with it, but you're like, there are so many strictures and like limitations and things like and that. And you know what? I, I'd love to meet your parents because obviously they did a good job. Okay. If you thought Judaism was sex positive. So anyway. Her parents are sex positive. I've okay. had conversations with her parents. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this so, is deeply uncomfortable. Sorry. See? So after the wedding, um, w- the, there's something called um, Hilchot Nida or the laws of impurity or yeah, that's the best way to describe it. Um, and um, or laws of separation. And basically when a woman gets her period from the onset of her period, she waits five days until that period finishes. But they all physical contact of any sort um, stops. They sleep in separate, a couple sleep in separate beds. Um, they don't touch each other. And then from that, the last day of her period, she then counts seven clean days, seven white days with no more blood. And then she goes to the mikvah. The mikvah is a ritual bath. Um, every city, I mean, you're commanded as a Jewish community that that goes up before anything else because um, that is the sex positive part. It's really important that people have sex. Um, and then you go to the mikvah, you dunk in the water. It's it's partial spring water. A lot of them look like little spas. And um, you say a special blessing and then you go back and you resume relationships with your husband at that point, normal sexual relationship with your husband until the next time you see blood. Um, so that's Hilchot Nida. That and is a nutshell. We should say here for the people who don't know, this is I mean, even most mo- what so Haredi ultra ultra orthodox. So I will say I people I keep observe, you do, you keep yeah so, I know I said I don't answer right, so questions like, that I'm happy to answer. There's like a one percent of the most observant who are to the I hate this term but to the right of where you are who all keep Nida within the modern orthodox community. Which is again, we're talking one I to two percent. Would you keep, say most, most people, people keep yes. it? Yes, I think if you consider yourself Orthodox, I think okay. again, I'm not a sociologist, but my my understanding, people may keep it to more or less. You know, people right. may sleep in the same bed, they may touch each other, but for the most part, people do keep some. And then it's variation. pretty unheard of in conservative reform and secular Judaism. When, when I was doing my master's at the at Jewish Theological Seminary, and this came up, people were like laughing about this ancient custom. Right, yeah. I was already married, and I was like. You know, I do this, guys. And they were like, what? That's all. Like, it's like a tribal ritual. I love the hush that must have fallen. When you're it like, was. I do this. It was. It was. You know, anyway. So, and it made me feel odd. Like, I don't think I'd ever thought of it as like an ancient tribal ritual before. So, anyhow. It's just like what everyone you knew does, probably. Some like, variation or other. Yeah. So, and now, if you want to talk about how that affects marriage, you know, it's very interesting to watch historically how this has been. Like, um, when I got married, my mother gave me this book on mikvah that she had been given called the, A Hedge of Roses by Norman Lamb. Do you remember this this book? No, but oh my God. I'm glad to know that, that oh. Norman Lamb, elderly male rabbi, was the author. Oh, he was oh, not always elderly, but that he was the guy who wrote the guy, the young woman's guide to mikvah. So he basically penned this. This is the panacea for all relationships. You know, sex gets boring otherwise, and if you separate it half the month, then it solves all your problems basically. And um, and so ev- need this. All these laws were taught as like this rosy. You know, it's the perfect solution to everybody's marital problems. You know, as the divorce rates climbing and the general community. By the time I hit the feminist community, like big time, there was so much pushback. Like people hate mikvah. People feel like they're, they haven't touched in two weeks. And they come home, they're expected to have sex and they feel like they're raped. Like it's a terrible thing. I'm hoping the pendulum is kind of swinging back to the middle now, which is that it is a law like any other law and how you build it into your life and how you view it and how your body functions really has a lot of impact on this. So for some people, it works quite well. And for some people, it's really problematic. The advent of the pill that you can use for three months straight now is awful helpful to women or the IUD where you don't get your period so you don't because being early married and, and you can imagine being having no physical contact half the month was really really hard um, so 
you know, I think it's just it's just another thing in life, and it can be a beautiful thing or it can be a problem. Oh, of course. Thing. So if you're on birth control that spaces out your periods, correct? Or then then when, right. If, or if you're pregnant, then. Go at it. Correct. Or if exactly. you're postmenopausal. Or if you're postmenopausal. Bring it, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what does that look, Stephanie? You're looking at me like no, horrified. No, 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 horrified at all. Just sort of thinking. Just, just thinking. thinking. And because I'm, cause I'm willing to the guide in. to getting it on, which you gave me, which yes. is not the guide to mikvah that you <laughs> <Right>. received. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how could our listeners listen to The Joy of Text? Um, it's on Jewish public media, and you can just Google the Joy of Text or Jewish public media or even the Joy of Text at this point, I think, and you will find us. And um, it's one of our favorite, favorite, favorite projects. And I think, you know, people sometimes argue maybe it's not so tsunu, it's not so modest, but I feel like listening quietly on your own to all these things is actually a great way to disseminate information in the in the most fabulous, appropriate way. And we love doing it. It's really a labor of love on our part. Bacheva, thank you so much. Thank you for bringing us all these presents. Thank you for my new vibrator, my new <laughs> guide to getting on. I'm saying it out loud. I'm not cringing. I'm trying to be sex positive. Sex positive. Um, and for the coconut off. oil that I will both cook with, you know, and now that I know what I'm also- saying. You know what I'm not ever going to use what? in any of my intimate relations? Coconut oil. I don't like coconut. Well, I don't like I'm, the smell like of coconut. It doesn't stay in the sheets. It doesn't. Oh. At least rumor tells me it doesn't stay in the sheets. I haven't tried it, but uh, um, yeah, it's a great it's a great lubricant. It's natural. It doesn't stay in the sheets. But you keep it in the kitchen? Usually people keep them separate. <laughs> All right, girls. All right. That's All another right, episode. Batshava, thank you so much. And you're going to stick around and do Mazel Tovs with us in a few minutes, right? Sure. Okay. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even educated fleas. Do it, let's do it, let's fall in love. So our next guest is Jen Glantz. She is a professional bridesmaid. She runs Bridesmaid for Hire, which offers a host of options leading up to and on the big day. She wrote a book about it, Always a Bridesmaid for Hire. She calls herself your wedding wingwoman, um, and she, she can do speech writing. She can be a sort of incognito bridesmaid. Welcome, Jen. Hi, Jen. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. How did you come up with this genius idea, and how hasn't it existed before? That's such a great question. So I was a bridesmaid so many times for my friends in my early 20s that I started to realize that when I was behind the scenes at weddings, there was nobody there whose job it was to be there for the bride. And that sounds absurd, but it's true. A wedding planner's job is to set up the wedding, work with vendors. If a bride had bridesmaids, their job was to get ready and to have fun. There was nobody there to deal with the emotional crisis that happens and all the chaos that happens behind the scenes. So that's why I figured, you know what, let me try to introduce this position into the wedding industry. And that's what I did three years ago. So it's like part butler, part therapist, part wedding organizer, part something like that. More therapist. Yeah. Part, part yeah, sister. Yeah, I definitely say I'm an on-call therapist, the personal assistant, the social director, and the peacekeeper because I've personally never been to a wedding when there wasn't a lot of drama happening. Okay, so now this is a requisite uh, question. Tell us the most uh, messed up thing that you have seen. You don't have to mention names or any identifying details, but really the most kind of like big, spectacular tragedy. 
Blowout. <laughs> I wish there was just one that came to mind, but there's so many. So one that happened recently was five minutes before a wedding, the bride pulled me into a room, shut the door and said, Jen, I hate the groom. I <gasps> don't want to do this. And, you know, being in this job for about three years, I've seen it all, or at least I thought I have, but that was quite a shocking moment. And in that moment, I had to act quickly because the guests were already sitting down. The wedding was about to begin. And here she was telling me that she really <laughs> didn't want to do this. And is your job then to keep the wedding on like the way in the wedding planner, Jennifer Lopez, like has her walkie talkie or is your or is your loyalty to the bride? Like that's a crazy situation to be in. What did you tell her? So with this position, my loyalty is only to the bride. I don't care if the wedding goes on or not. I'm there to help the bride with whatever she needs. So I want to make sure she feels comfortable. So what I told her was, listen, you need to talk to the groom and you need to talk to him right now. So I locked them in a room for 10 minutes, had them talk it out. And when that was over, they did decide to go through with the wedding just because their guests were waiting for them, but they didn't want to go through with the marriage. So that was the time that I realized that people are complicated, emotions are complicated. Wait, 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 think- wait, wait. So, was, wait. so they actually got married. They just performed. The, <laughs> uh-huh. they, 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 they played marriage. They With the rings, they officially had it done. And then they were planning to file for divorce a week or two later? Yes. So and had this I am, company, I am horrified. So had this had had she shown any indication of this? Because it sounds like the groom was on the same page. Like, did you see any of this in the planning or upcoming, you know, the the lead up? I didn't and I, I spoke to this bride, you know, many times before the wedding. Part of my job is to really get to know the bride very well and we do that and I didn't realize any of that beforehand and I just think, you know, while this sounds crazy, this this does happen a lot. People call weddings off weeks before, months before, just nobody talks about it so openly and here I was viewing it really up close for the first time and I realized that sometimes it takes people getting to that finish line, quote unquote, before they realize this isn't the right thing, this isn't what I want to do. And sometimes that just takes the moment before you do something. I think we can all relate to that in different parts of our life where we think we want to do something. And right before we do it, we say, whoa, what the heck am I about to do? And then you end up with four kids. Or a tattoo or a piercing. (laughs) You know, I think we all have that moment. I think Liel and I are both thinking right now about when Brandon and Kelly almost got married and then had the courage to call it off and say, let's just have the party instead. 90210 also. This is like really ageist. Jen, a question for you. I imagine when you tell people you're, you know, a bridesmaid for hire, that that's your business, you probably get some, you know, laugh, some pushback, some sort of being like, that's not a real job. But I'm actually in the throes of wedding planning right now. um, And I realized it is really hard. And there's a lot going on. And there was an article in the Times a few weeks ago that was basically like a feminist reclamation of the term bridezilla. And it says, you know, it's just another way in which women both have to have the perfect Pinterest-ready wedding, but also can't appear stressed. Otherwise, they'll be called a bridezilla. But like these sort of dueling things, it's an unwinnable situation. Is that something that you've sort of noticed? And is that why you think your business has been so, you know, has taken off? I think so. And I I totally agree with that. I don't like the word bridezilla because I think that just defines every single woman who's going through the wedding planning process. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. You have a lot of pressure on you. You're throwing a party essentially for every single person you've ever known in your life and you're spending a whole lot of money to do that. How could you not be stressed out? So I think when people say, oh, she's acting like a bridezilla, It's almost like put yourself in that person's shoes. It's not an easy thing to do. Society has put 
so much pressure on weddings and that's translated into people who are very unhappy at their own wedding because it's not living up to what they expected. And I think that that's extremely, extremely sad and something that people don't talk about is that your wedding doesn't have to look like everybody else. You don't have to spend your life savings on it. You can make it what you want it to be and ditch the traditions that people have told you in the past you need to do. Why do you wear white? If you don't even know the answer to that question, then you shouldn't be wearing a white wedding dress, you know? Yeah, I mean, Sid and I had 65 people to our wedding. Sounds That's sounds awesome. incredible. At great social cost because we had aunts and uncles and cousins who were mad at us. But we just, you know, we... We just didn't want. Are they still? Has that? No, like, they got over it. Whatever. Over it. I mean, most people. Which is why at the last minute, Sid pulled genocide and be like, I really don't want to go <laughs> through with it. We're actually playing the long con, which is we we went through with it. We want people to think it's a real marriage. Sometime <laughs> at about the kids. 25 to 27 year mark, we're planning to pull the plug. So, Jen, I have a question for you. Because this is like literally the plot of a Kevin Hart movie (laughs) from last year. So my question is this. So getting to know the bride, how does that happen? Like, do you, are there like a number of sessions? Do you hang out? Is there like a 38 page questionnaire? Like, how do you, how do you get to know these women? That's a great question. People always compare this to the Kevin Hart movie. And I like to say that I started this way before the Kevin Hart movie. And when I watched that movie, I said, wow, he makes this job look really, really easy. Um, a lot of what I do is I get to know the bride. We spend time on the phone, in person, over Skype, if we live in different states. And we get to know each other like human beings. You know, I don't sit there and go through a, a roster of questions. It's more just conversations. We build a friendship. We build a relationship. I am the person they call with all their wedding problems, all their personal problems by the time we start talking until their actual wedding. Sometimes there is a backstory of how we know each other because they don't want to tell people that they hired me. So in those cases, I do have a fake name. In those cases, I do have a fake backstory. But the relationship we've created, that is real. Jen, two final things. First of all, um, I want you to know, are you married? I'm not. Okay, so I want you to to know that when you get married, if you want like a gay bestie uh, to help (laughs) you plan everything, I'm not gay, but I'll be that guy for you. So I just just Aww. to thank you for coming on our show. I'll be your your ga- your gal pal. Uh, I'll I'll go to the cake tastings with you. I'll just I, like I want you to know that I'm there for you. Well, and, thank you. And the second thing is, and more important, Stephanie is getting married in a matter of days. And given all that you've seen, given your expertise, and also you you do coaching as well. You're a life coach. You're a business coach. I mean, you have a lot of 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 people knowledge. Um, what advice do you have for her uh, about her wedding? But but more important, her marriage. Well, first of all, congratulations to you. Thank you. Second of all, the best piece of advice I can give you on your wedding day is let things happen and be okay with it. The day's not going to go perfect. No day in your life ever is. So when things don't go perfect, don't harp on it. Enjoy the party. If you're not spending 90% of the night on the dance floor, then you are not going to have a good time. As for your marriage, you know, I don't think I could really give you advice on that because I am not married. But from what I've seen from couples I've worked with and successful marriages after, uh, I really think that it's all about continuing to feel like you're always dating the person that you're with, uh, making sure that once a week you have time to spend with them and you plan that special date with them. But it doesn't feel stale. It doesn't feel like a friendship. And it doesn't feel like life after marriage is boring. There should always be something that you look forward to together. So those would be my main pieces of advice. How many kids do you think Stephanie and Ben should have? Ooh, I'm not sure. Just I pick a number. I like, why does it go from wedding answer. to kids right away? Why is that you the trajectory for everyone? Because Sid and I did. I <laughs> no, but I mean, that's once you get married, everyone's like, so when are you having kids? 
It's like, right, that's like can I live? That's everyone parent. That's what the, that's the next question every parent asks. I right, something, <laughs> something about the continuation of the species. You know, just that. Just our survival. Thank you so much. How do how do our listeners, you know, how do they hire you? How do they find you? Sure. So you can find me on bridesmaidforhire.com and you can find out about my personal life on jenglance.com. Amazing. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, you hot and cold, not always easy to hold and you're hard to impress. It sounds funny, but you might be the best friend that I have. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. I am like over the moon, guys, this week. We have the incredible Anita Diamond um, with us. She has written, you know, she's written everything. She's written The Red Tent. She's written a bunch of amazing sort of Jewish fiction. It's, she's just, she's just amazing. So her latest book is actually her first book, Revisited, Revitalized. It's The Jewish Wedding Now. Um, It was originally published in 1985, then it was updated in 2001, and now we have sort of the 2017 edition that just came out. It's Um, all changed. Weddings all, marriages all changed in those years. (laughs) Anita, Red Anita. (laughs) Hi, hi. Thank you so much for being here. Um, oh, my pleasure. Such an honor. Um, so why why now to rewrite this book? Oh, this was overdue. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, everything's changed. A lot has changed since uh, 2001, certainly since 1985. Um, and But the 2001 edition was kind of a light revision. This is kind of a deep revision, and it needed a new title. And 
that was like the um, internet exists now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the internet is here, and you can find things on it. You can buy a ketubah even if you live in Des Moines, which you couldn't in 1985. Um, so, every, you know, things have changed. Everybody immediately thinks, oh, marriage equality, which, of course, is a, a big change, and uh, that's part of the book, and it's part of the change of the language of the book, too. So it's not so much brides and grooms and much more couples and beloveds, but other things have changed, too, and... Uh, so, so there, there are lots of changes. I, I, some of them people might not notice, but I think are important. What are the ones that we won't notice? Because I should say I got the two – so I was married in 2005, Anita. And you got the 2001 so, version? Yeah, we had the 2001 version. And, you know, it was great. We loved the 2001 version and, and we had a very Jewy wedding and, uh, you know, but, but it worked out fine for us. Like we, what would we do differently if we, were, if we were getting the version today? I'm not sure you would do that much differently, especially since you were kind of already launched into making Jewish decisions. Um, but some of the things that you wouldn't necessarily notice is that I actually unprivileged um, Orthodox or a very traditional point of view. Um, the book always had this um, in the preface about how uh, nobody has a lock on authenticity, Jewish authenticity. But in the past, uh, the first examples, for example, of a ketubah would be a very traditional one, an Orthodox one, for example. And that's, uh, that's not who reads this book. So the Orthodox versions of things, and I'm using Orthodox loosely because there is no such thing as one Orthodox sure. anymore, um, is, in the, is in the appendix. It's not in the body of the book. And that, that's kind of a subtle change, but I think what it does is truly embrace the authenticity and the facts on the grounds that liberal Judaism is authentic and normative Judaism in America. So that's, that's one of those. Um, and the other thing is uh, the way that I talked about people marrying into the Jewish community. I don't like the word intermarriage. Interfaith is a complete misnomer. We really don't have the language for that. But the, the diversity of people under the chuppah now is um, it's just a fact and trying to, to be as um, embracing as well as inclusive as possible is a big change in the book. So I, I actually really benefited from the 2017 version, which we got, you know, copies of a few months ago, because I'm getting married actually next week. So I think... Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, But so, I I mean, the book is fascinating, because it really is a blueprint for how to do a Jewish wedding when, as you say, you know, what even what a Jewish wedding is remains up for up for debate, up for up for up for grabs, essentially. Um, So I love that there were sort of the mikvah and the ketubah, um, but then also sort of ways to make things your own. And it sort Mm -hmm. of captures the, I think, DIY spirit of of, of weddings today. It was always there, but it's it's even more profoundly part of Jewish life now. So um, I also think one of the big changes is the fact that in the earlier editions, there's like sort of how to shop for a rabbi, how to find a rabbi. And in this one, I actually made the case for why you might want to choose a rabbi, because you have lots of choices now. Um, and you can have a very Jew- Jewy wedding with a justice of the peace or having your uncle or your best friend deputized or become a minister for the day or whatever. So, you know, why would you go to the trouble of hiring a rabbi, finding a rabbi if you're not connected to one? So, um, and, and that was, that was um, proposed to me by a couple of younger rabbis who said, you know, you might want to talk about that because we're just one choice among many. I am shocked when I read the New York Times wedding pages, as I trust we all do. You, you read them, right? Right, Anita? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I am shocked by the um, – you know, I understand that people who are marrying who are from two different faiths uh, will make all sorts of choices. And, and I understand co-officiating if they're, if they're 
both coming from different traditions that they want to honor. I'm surprised by the couples who marry where both of them are clearly like Jewy as the day is long. And then the wedding is performed by like, you know, college roommate Kevin who got deputized as right. uh, And I'm like, really? Like you're bo- you clearly were both raised so deep in community and then you want Kevin. Like it's, it's like, is, do you have that much antipathy toward – like rabbis have actually done this a lot of times. Did you not yeah, think exactly. that maybe, you know, Rabbi – Gary would be better at it than Kevin, but I don't know. I've been I've been Kevin, so I shouldn't put down. The, I've been an <laughs> I've been an officiant, so you uh-huh. know. I, yeah, and and sometimes there there can be lots of reasons for that, um, like that there are too many rabbis to choose from. So I'm not going to offend any one person. Let's offend everybody. Mm. Um, so it won't be your rabbi or my rabbi or your parents or your your divorced mother's rabbi or you, you know. There's a lot of there can be. That can be one reason. One could be antipathy. The other is, I don't know you can assume from names or anything else that these people are deeply connected. Right. True, yeah, they true. just have Jewish last names. And <laughs> right. they're all like I named about Rachel. That. I mean, there are, there is enough. Uh, it's going to take another couple generations before people get over the, ne- the noses and the names. <laughs> so... As- that's As it. someone with with clear, you know, both respect for and and a keen appreciation uh, for, you know, the the, the mechanics of tradition, uh, which are very very obvious in your novels, is is there a part of you that looks upon all these changes and thinks, you know, that's that's a little bit sad. We've lost something. We've lost this. You could call it orthodoxy, but we've lost the simplicity of a tradition that has gone on more or less in the same way for you know many 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 generations. Is there a part of you that thinks that? No. No, because there's this fallacy, this romantic fallacy that it was always one way, and it was never always one way, and uh, or that it was simple, and it was never simple. Uh, so I, you know, I don't think so, and um, I'm just not nostalgic for that. I'm, I don't, we don't, we haven't lived in communities where everybody knew exactly what a Jewish wedding looked like since the, you know, since the Enlightenment. So I, I don't, you know, no. Fair no, enough. I mean, it's it's. I'm not willing to give up any of the choices that we've um, that we've uh, achieved since you know since the Enlightenment. And it goes wh- back away. It's not just the American Jewish community. Oh, we're so bad. You know, it's always been changing. We he- we we are here because things changed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when I, I my grandparents, my great grandparents, my grandfather Walter's parents, who were Ukrainian peasants uh, who moved to Philadelphia. Uh, they, you know, from what I understand and, and just what I know from, from the, the family and family lore, you know, he was an almost illiterate cobbler and it was a vaguely arranged marriage. They probably had some say in the matter. And then they fled, you know, conscription to the army or whatever. <clears throat> and they, you know, he didn't know, he wasn't learned and she, she was a little more literate than he was. And I don't think they were doing, maybe the, like, the seven blessings were probably read back in Ukraine, but like mm-hmm. the idea that they had all of this ceremony that we now think of as the Orthodox wedding uh, and that they had a family rabbi and that they were in religious community it's just it was clearly not the case I mean right. they were poor and they uh, you know didn't have any kind of real knowledge of tradition beyond how to keep a kosher home they were folk peasant Jews and right. I think that the the American Orthodox community or orthodoxy since World War II especially has built up the idea that it was always thus uh, right and I think not just, and I think we've all bought that idea. Um, so I think we have all bought that that romantic fallacy of the past that it was ever thus, and it looked like Tevya kind of, right. you know, and it was uh, it was the really romanticized vision of shtetl life, which was horrible. Most of the people were hungry most of the time, uh, and uh, and 
uh, well, the mikvahs were disgusting, and <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, girls were illiterate mostly, except a little Yiddish. So, you know, I I am not I do I have no nostalgia for this, uh, and the idea that oh, it was so you know, and actually two generations, three generations back, your mother did it for you. You, mm-hmm. you know, the couple didn't have a whole lot to do with it, or if she did, it was all the bride, mm-hmm. and it was about what she was wearing. It wasn't about the ceremony. It wasn't. It wasn't a, a deep dive into tradition and what's meaningful to me. And um, oh, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that. Your rabbi told you. Now you're going to circle him, uh, and she did it because the rabbi told her to, but didn't necessarily know why. Um, so, you know, I, I don't. I don't think it was better back then. Um. As Stephanie said, she's getting married next week. We can't let you go without your telling us. Do uh, you have any advice for her? <laughs> uh, let's see. Comfortable shoes. Not kidding. Um, you should be able to dance and have a good time at your party. And I don't think sometimes – I hope that's already on your checked-off list that you're not going to be wearing uh, anything that will prevent you from, you know, getting down and having a really good time at your own wedding. Uh, and the harder thing is to be present at your own wedding and to let go of, I don't know how much control you've had over this, if you're one of those checklist people and you, everything is, you know, organized. But you just have to sort of um, get very zen and just be in the moment and and try to take it all in because it, it it's fabulous. It goes really fast. Um, none of this is, is earth-shattering news or new, but I hope you can hold on to it. I hope you have friends uh, or, or siblings or somebody who will just say, I'm taking care of it. Leave it alone. Don't worry. Yeah, but what about the marriage after that? What's your advice oh, for that? marriage? Oh, I have no advice. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't ever go to bed angry. Uh, oh, it's, it's angry? I thought it was hungry. Oh, I totally <laughs> misunderstood that one. <laughs> Yeah, I would never go to bed hungry. Before we let you go, can you solve one thing? At every wedding, you hear the rabbi say, okay, now is the time to break the glass. And and the reason we do that is because of like the Holocaust or the temple. Like what? Can you give us the definitive reason why we break the glass? No, no. This is Judaism. There's lots of reasons. There is no definitive reason. What's the best reason? Like what's your go-to reason? Well, well, there's the Freudian one, of course. It's the breaking of the hymen. Um, <laughs> I, that, I actually don't hear that one. I actually have never heard that one. <laughs> I'm going to say that out loud. But actually, in terms of the dramaturgy of a wedding, you've been in sort of this hushed silence and timelessness, and it's um, everyone's kind of holding their breath and crying, and then, bang, the party starts. It breaks it. I mean, it, it breaks the... Um, that's when the, that's when the simcha begins. So, so that, I think that in a way is the it's the ta-da, have a good time. And it's not to like over ascribe like these historical meanings to it. It's just well, a way of saying. I, this I is... think that's what rabbis did. I, I think historically it was probably to scare away evil spirits. I like that's that one. Did. I hope we go with that one. Grooms were like you know candy to evil spirits. That's what they went for the the beautiful <laughs> and the young. So this would scare them away. Oh, I hope we have no evil spirits, Anita. No evil spirits, and have a good time. Thank you so much, Anita Diamond. This was amazing. Uh, the Jewish Wedding Now is available. I think all conservative and reform rabbis require you to buy this. Like, everyone I know has this book from the, from their officiant. Thank you, guys. I know this is a wonderful podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very so much. It, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure, and I, I hope to see you and Jim again. You, you and your husband of many years. Yes, uh, many six, years. Six, how, many, how, year, how many years has it been? Oh, 30 years. Something. Okay. So, you know, married in 1980. So, so you know time. from marriage. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah. Do T- take care. Bye bye. Bye. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl.
God's best friend A kiss may be grand But it won't pay the rental on your humble flat Or help you at the automat Grandpa? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Grandpa! Are you on, are you on speakerphone? I am, but I have to be. Why? Oh, for your ear, for your because he, he can't hear if it's on the speakerphone. Is that okay? It'll just gonna yeah. be quick. You're a special mystery caller this this morning. Okay. Are you at the dentist? Okay. I am outside the dentist, and Grandma is inside with the dentist. They're doing their cleanings, getting a cleaning right. before the wedding. Oh, right, 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 right. Took them a month to get this appointment. That's why we have to. That's why. <laughs> so, so Grandpa, I know I'm seeing you. I think in like a week, but we wanted to call you and just check in and see how, how are you doing in the lead up to my wedding? Oh, I'm, I'm very excited. I, you know, I'm, I'm at my, I'm at my fighting weight and I can hardly wait to see, to see you people. So Grandpa Al, um, how long have you been married? More than 63 years. Wow. So what's the secret? I'll tell you what the secret is. I look at it in three categories. You know, one is communication, which is a two-way thing. And the way I describe, you know, my tip is Ben should wake up every morning wanting to make Steffi happy for the day. Since it's a two-way thing, Steffi on her part should speak slowly and distinctly so Ben understands exactly what he has to do. <laughs> I know. I talk okay. very quickly. I'm, I'm taking notes here. I'm <laughs> loving this. Okay. Uh, the next thing is avoid financial disputes. Okay. Now, my, my experience leads me to believe there are two ways to do that. One is make sure you have a Costco credit card <laughs> and a drawer full of discount coupons from Bed Bath & Beyond. I can vouch for that. That is a big drawer you guys have. <laughs> okay. my, my mother is so with you there, by the way. Okay. Then there's, you know, make the right lifestyle choices. I would suggest they plan to move as quickly as possible to La Jolla, California, or maybe San Diego, but stay south of the Mason-Dixon line. And Stephanie knows why I say that. He's been telling me that for years. Look, I think they're going to have a successful marriage. And because I've always admired Steffi's ability to live a balanced and satisfying life. And as proof of that, I mean, she's lived for the last couple of years with a cat who really wants to kill her. (laughs) He wants to love me to death. So, no, no, you know, hey, Steffi, you know. If he were, if he weighed five more pounds, he would kill you. That's probably true. We've seen the scratches. So that's those are my tips. Now, if you ask me, what is the most important thing for a successful marriage? I would I would have to say it's make sure you stay off the Cross Bronx Expressway because that's a that's a terrible place to be. These are very wise words. Grandpa, I love this. This is amazing. Do you know, have I told you that you're doing the mozi? You should probably start practicing that. I know. I'm going to practice. I'll be practicing all week. Grandma wants to hear me say it. 
Yeah, we're so excited. Well, Grandpa, I'm, I'll see you next week. See you next week, Grandpa. I know, and you're in your okay. in your skinny tux. Yeah, I'll see your your two friends next week too. They're yes, like friends of us. You'll know us because okay. we're the ones running up to you and hugging you, and you're thinking, "Who's that guy?" <laughs> That's us. We will be the one filleting your car. That's right. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen. Have a good time. Thank you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you. Okay. okay safe, see you soon. Safe Grandpa. travels. Bye. Bye, Grandpa. Okay. Love you. Bye-bye. Have fun at the dentist. All right, we are on the phone with a special guest, uh, Rabbi Amichai Lau-Levi. He is the founding spiritual leader of Lab Shul NYC and the creator of Storytelling. He's an Israeli-born Jewish educator, writer, and performance artist. He is in the news right now because he recently issued a 50-page proposal on how to sort of deal with uh, the intermarriage problem or issue in Judaism. But I actually want to say before we even get to that, I, you and I go way back. Yep. And I've been to one of your high holiday services with Lab Tool, and I just want to say it is the most un- unbelievably moving and, and, and deeply Jewish and very fun ritual. Thank you. I'm delighted to welcome you, and I'm looking forward to welcome you guys. Again, we, we have some ideas for the future. <laughs> Maybe yes, we can you, do stuff together. You definitely <laughs> do. And there was, we were chanting Rumi, and there was, you know, you were like barefoot wearing white, and there was music, but were, it was... Were you barefoot wearing white, Stephanie? No, but like, but I, I want to be. Next time. <laughs> it almost made you Jewish. Ooh. Never too late. So, so <laughs> tell us a little bit about what's been going on with you lately and, and sort of, sort of the, the, the proposal you released. Uh, I was ordained as a conservative rabbi a year ago and had to face up to the challenge or the reality that is the case in American Jewry and increasingly uh, in the rest of the world, where the majority of modern Jews prioritize love over tribal affinities and not necessarily marry people who were born or convert as Jews. Um, the numbers are high. The demographics in the states talk about 72%. At the Labshul community, those numbers are reflected. I guess between three and five wedding invitations to officiate a week. Uh, and I would say a good two-thirds of those are between Jews and people of another faith. And in some cases, Jews and those whose father is Jewish but mother who's not. And according to Jewish law, that is an issue. I have to have a solution that will work well with my needs and our modernity and also converse with Jewish tradition and law. So I spent a year researching um, halachic uh, Jewish legal precedents, historical sociological uh, evidence of a third category of someone who's in between Jew and Goy, and I'm calling those people Joys. A joy is a, <laughs> someone who's that. a Jew and a Goy. Yeah, yeah. T- tell us about the joys and 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 how they factor into the your your the services you're going to do going forward. Well, again, like I said, we have precedents, we have historical evidence going back two thousand years from rabbis in Jewish communities that that had to struggle with this notion of binaries not always working, and people in the fringe who, for whatever reason, do not convert into the Jewish faith but live with Jewish people and a part of Jewish civilization. So the rabbis in the early Talmudic era created a status known as Ger Toshav, loosely permanent resident, but not citizen. Um, and similar categories were invented in uh, other civilizations and 
historical moment, the numbers were small, we assume. What's happening today is that the numbers of people uh, who marry in to Judaism are very high, and the number of those who prioritize Jewish life, not necessarily religion, is also possibly unprecedented in human history, according to historians. So the joys of those who live with Jews, love Jews, involved in some way in Jewish life, and do not or do not yet convert. To those people, to those couples who come to me where Jewish investment or investment in Jewish life and in Jewish, the Jewish enterprise is considerable, and we can talk about what that means, I can say yes to them because that person is not a goy. That person is a joy. And that person wants to be part of the Jewish experience moving forward. And my saying yes to them keeps them in and keeps expanding the conversation of what is Jewish. My saying no to those people turns them away, period. So I am betting on a yes, proving more of an elusive, uh, of an elastic community and a growing community. And my saying yes to joys strengthens my community. It also necessitates my resignation from the rabbinical assembly of the conservative movement that is struggling very, very mightily right now with this boundary issue. So that's that's my my next question for you. What happened? So you released this sort of fifty page, you know, really really fascinating proposal. Did you know immediately that you were going to have to leave the rabbinical assembly, which is you know the rabbinic arm of the conservative movement, or was that sort of like a a, a necessity for you? I spent a year researching both the sources and delving into a lot of political and communal conversations with leaders and rabbis, with thinkers, with priests and interfaith uh, practitioners to really understand the landscape and understand uh, which way. Ah, you got a Jewish dog here. It's fair. <laughs> a joy, uh, maybe. We don't a, know. No, it's a jog. Yeah, a jog. A jog. Right. A jog. There you go. <laughs> so, um, the conversations were very, very interesting. I think I did a lot of legwork in making sure that people understand where I'm coming from. And knowing that the conservative movement, uh, which has been declining in numbers in previous years, but still holds on to the very mainstream of negotiation between modernity and antiquity, um, is struggling with this. And I, as a fresh graduate, am hopefully helping the movement come to some uh, difficult and brave decisions about moving forward. Um, So I knew that there would have to be a decision, whether I'm in or I'm out. We're negotiating what that means right now. I'm not the only rabbi who stood up on this issue in recent years, um, and I expect there will be more. I mean, I can tell you confidentially that I'm receiving many, many emails from uh, rabbis who are on the fence, Um, and I'm getting a lot of love mail and hate mail as a response to the joy proposal. Um, But what's important is that the conversation is real, face reality. There might be a preference to say this is not happening. This is happening. We are shifting. This is post-ethnic, post-modern, hybridic, fluidic reality. And um, wherever the Jewish people are progressing towards, it is going to include a more creative sense of identity and uh, boundary. Well, n- just not just that it's not happening, that I'm not performing them, so it's not happening. Right? A certain that was a strategy. That was a strategy that the movement back in the 70s adopted, assuming that if we say no to couples, we're not going to be officiate, that will be, be a deterring factor, and they will not get married to the people they love. That's like a fiddler on the roof approach, <laughs> which uh, worked for a while, and until, you know, 50, 60 years ago, most of our ancestors did not make as many choices as we are making including who you get married to 
and what gender fluidity binary, post-binary you're on, and what's your playlist, and, uh, you know, etc. We are making more choices. You know, the people of... Uh, the, cho- the chosen people are now the choosing people, just like people in the modern West. And we have to compete in a marketplace of ideas. I believe we can. I believe we have a great product that needs some rebranding and re-strategizing. And uh, people are going to opt in, not because they have to, but because they want to. And so, and so it's our choice to make sure that they want to. L- let me ask you this question. And, and, and I have to preface it and say, you know, I'm asking this with... So much love and respect for for everything that you know you do. I've I've been following you for years, um, and, and I think you know I've attended services too. They're amazing. Um, but listening to you talk, um, here's what I'm hearing. You know, I'm hearing the language of individualism. I'm, I'm hearing the language of postmodernism. I'm, I'm hearing a language that assumes that for some reason this religion um, that uh, has you know done quite right for some millennia. Uh, has to go ahead and adapt to individual choices rather than individuals succumbing to religious dictates. And what I'm also hearing is I'm hearing a kind of distinction that you're making between Judaism as a religion and Judaism as, I don't want to be offensive, but a lifestyle. Um, Correct. I think we need to acknowledge that these evolutions are happening. We're living in a century of consumerism and a lot of me-based, and the question is, how do you get people from a me-based living to a we-based living, and to be part of a community, both on a local and a more global sense of responsibility, of affinity? I think one of the things we're seeing in today's America is the collapse of some of the sense of real responsibility to a we, and it's very, very small and circumscribed. Um, So I'm interested in giving people a sense of me, of an individual toolkit, to make life meaningful as part of a we, as part of a community. And I am aware of the fact that uh, the majority of modern Jews don't prioritize Jewish religion, lifestyle, civilization as 100% of who they are. It might be 80%, 60%, or 40%. The question is, what's the minimum that's considered worthwhile? Um, and we are in a continuum here. When the conservative movement in the 1980s voted to let women in, that was an understanding of the evolution of autonomy and who is in and who is no longer uh, allowed to be out. Um, same in 2006 okay. when the LGBT so response I'm, happened. Okay, but I think one, if I can just pick up on what Liel was, was pressing you on. So, you know, you feel that there's a gain to be made in performing ceremonies for Jews marrying non-Jews who are interested in being fellow travelers or or Jew-goys right. or joys. And, and let's posit that that's True. And I've often said, you know, some of the best Jews I know, certainly in my synagogue, are, are non-Jewish partners who never converted, but who clearly are walking with Jews throughout time and, and history. I mean, clearly have joined the community and the civilization, even if they never had a formal conversion. But but does that mean, do you ever say no? I mean, do you ever, yeah. are there any standards? Yes. First of all, couples who want to have a marriage ceremony with me officiating have to commit to a six-month process of study with me prior to the wedding. Uh, number one. Number two, I do not co-officiate when another faith minister of another religion will be present. The wedding needs to be a primarily Jewish wedding. And um, once we are done with the wedding, I invite them, I cannot obligate, to uh, be free members of my community for a year. So there's both a what I obligate and what I invite people for, to in- entice people to discover what in this toolkit, I'll use that term again, 
is of real meaning to their lives and what value it brings. I cannot coerce, but I can convince. And I do say no. I've said no to quite a few couples in the past just months, including one where a lovely gentleman from Israel and a beautiful woman from Poland invited me to come be with them at church on Saturday at noon and be there with a Catholic priest and give my blessing with like a month's notice. And I said, how do I even begin? But I basically said, I want you to imagine that around this table where we're sitting, it's not just me, you, and her, but our grandparents, who happen to be all Polish from 100 years ago. And I want you to listen to their conversation before you ask me for my response. That psychodrama was super powerful. And I still said no. Uh, will I see them again? I don't know, to be perfectly honest. So speaking of, of the grandparents, uh, here, here's what I'm imagining these grandparents saying. You know, uh, if you don't want to be Jewish, don't be Jewish. We're not here to market this to you. This is a religion. You join it. We're not, you know, we're not here to, to, to sell you, you know, cheese or, or toothpaste. Uh, this is something that has to be meaningful to you. And if it's not, you know, mm-hmm. as they say, they gazong. So that's what, what one grandparent said. The other Catholic grandparent was much sterner, at least in her granddaughter's imagination. Um, and I agree. And I will go back to, you know, Mordechai Kaplan's use of civilization, perhaps ahead of his time. I think part, one of the reasons many people don't convert right away when asked to, you know, join their Jewish spouse is because the Jew is so often so illiterate and so unaware of what Judaism has to offer and shows up once a year for Yom Kippur. And so the other partner says, look, I'm not sure I believe in God. I, in theory, like this thing. Look at my partner over here. You want me to go through a year's worth of learning about God and the Torah? (laughs) Let him go first, yeah. Exactly. Like, what are you even talking about? The standards are completely unrealistic. So by inviting them both into a journey of discovery, what in this thing is meaningful to you? What are the values? What are the symbols? What are the traditions? Yes, God. No, God. People are hungry for meaning. People want something that speaks to who they are. And people are ready to pick and choose. We know that. Rabbi, let, let me ask you... Choose and let, let them prioritize the Jewish vocabulary as a major part of their diet. It might not be the only element, but it's going to be a major element of their diet. If we, if we sell it right. And I'm using the word sell very consciously. Right. L- let me ask you one, one last question. Uh, there was an article this week by uh, Emma Green, who's a great writer and I believe a student of mm-hmm. Mark Oppenheimer's uh, in The Atlantic. More uh, a disciple than a student. More, more uh, yeah, yeah. an evangelical disciple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that uh, basically you know, talks at length about your proposal and argues quite provocatively that this might be the, the opening shot of what would essentially uh, break the Jewish people in half. Those who believe what you're just saying and those who think, like myself, that, you know, you're either, you're either in it or you're not. Uh, do, do you buy that kind of rhetoric? Do, does it seem overblown to you? It's overblown to an extent, but, you know, here I am sitting in Jerusalem where half a mile from where I'm sitting, the Western Wall is a place where I am now officially disinvited from worshipping at. And as a former paratrooper who was sworn here to defend the land of the Jews... The irony here is rather intense. So I think the break has happened. The risks are real. And I don't know what the future holds 25 or 50 years from now, but the definitions of Jewish on a more local sense require us to discover what are the common grounds globally. 
and there might not be what held us together a generation or three ago. Is there a split? Yes. Are there bridges? Absolutely. In some way, I wrote what I wrote because I need to serve my community. And I cannot at the same time serve the needs and the concerns of every Jew and every congregation on the planet. We're not exactly the same. And I do hope we're able to bridge the divide with as much empathy, patience, and compassion as possible. But we might just dance different dances in the same big party. Amichai, thank you so much. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. And our listeners can find out more about LabTool at LabTool.org. There is a link to your proposal, and they can sort of find out more about what you're doing. Uh, we wish you the best. Yes, good luck. Thank, thank you. Friends. Let us know how it goes. Amen. Be continued. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Our next guest in our in our super guest packed uh, a wedding episode is Roberta Grossman. She is an award winning filmmaker, and her documentary Hava Nagila the movie uses the song Hava Nagila as a portal into over a century of Jewish history, culture, and spirituality. Roberta Hava Nagila is the ultimate Jewish earworm. Um, it's stuck mm. in our how how is it stuck in our heads and, and in our celebrations for all of these years? Like, what's the key to this song staying power? Um, I think the key to the song Staying Power is, number one, it's an ear, earworm because the tune is great. And and num- number two, that it's it has in it, it's like a seed. You know, if you plant this seed, you're going to get an entire tree. So you start with the eye rolling, and when you look a little bit more deeply into it, you realize um, there's a reason why we respond. I started making this film because I remembered that when I was a little kid, um, and I would go to these family celebrations. Um, when that song starts playing, within the first three notes, everybody's up, right? You know, everybody, <laughs> the, the most curmudgeonly amongst us, young and old. Um, and there's this moment where everybody is holding hands, clasping hands, dancing in a circle, which is meaningful as well. Um, and the, I just had this tribal feeling of connection, happiness, joy, um, and but I had no idea. I didn't know what the words meant. I didn't know where the song came from. I didn't know whether it was five years old or 500 years old. So that was the impetus for starting, um, you know, the research for what ended up being Havanagila, the movie. So we've, we've seen the movie, but for our listeners, tell us, okay, what does Havanagila mean? <laughs> and where, <laughs> and, and where does it come from? And how did it become the Jewish wedding anthem? Okay. Well, the, the, I, standing on one foot, I'll try to tell you all that. So Havanagila means, those words mean, let us rejoice, let us rejoice. And the next words mean, let us rejoice and be glad, let us sing, let us sing and be glad. And then, most important, Uru Ahim, that's where people really get going, means awake, awake, awake brothers with a joyful heart. It started, amazingly, as a Hasidic nigun, a wordless melody, mm-hmm. prayerful melody, in a little teeny town called Satagora in what is now Ukraine. And then some uh, Satagora Hasidim um, were smart enough to leave Eastern Europe uh, before World War One, or right after World War One, and they went to what was then Palestine, where a guy named um, Abraham Zvi Edelson, who was a mu- Jewish musicologist, who was trying to use, uh, basically to create just the way that Hebrew was being recreated um, from, basically from scratch into a modern language. He was trying to simultaneously create a, a Jewish musical language. So he was going around to this very fertile place in, he was in Jerusalem, talking to and writing down and sometimes recording the the melodies, the songs from all the in-gathering of Jews that were coming from all parts of the Jewish world. So he encountered these Sadagor Hasidim, wrote down their melody, 
uh, many years later to celebrate the um, the, uh, the British victory over the Turks in in World War One. He was asked to do a concert in Jerusalem, 1918, and he remembered this uh, melody, which obviously was an earworm for him as well. And he put words to it. Some say the words are written by one of his students, Moshe Nathanson, a 12-year-old student. Um, that's it's possible. Um, can you imagine? And, can you imagine how excited this musicologist was when he's like going through everything that all of the ingathered, you know, exiles are bringing back to Palestine, looking for something to make like an Israeli national melody, and he comes across this. He must. Na, 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 na. <laughs> I mean, he just be like, yes, that's he's the like, one. I got it. Right. That's Musical- the one. <laughs> that 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 that's a music musicologist gold, right? So uh, he performs it, and it really took off from there. I mean, it started. It became before it became uh, basically an unofficial Israeli national anthem. It was really in the kibbutzim. Um, it was part of a burgeoning folk music and folk dance. It was married with the hora, with the circle dance. Um, and it traveled from Palestine to the United States, uh, where it kind of didn't get anywhere at a time, you know, before World War II, where we were still kind of a Yiddish-oriented Jewish society. But then after the war, when there was so much interest um, in things uh, Eastern European and also, and married to now this burgeoning interest in Israel comes this song that marries the two strands so amazingly well into an American Jewish society after World War II that's trying to grapple with the Holocaust. So to have this song then that says, you know, rejoice and have something, even though an entire culture has been destroyed, it becomes something that you can do, that you can grasp. That connects you to the, to the past, the lost world, and to the, this new burgeoning, you know, growing society in Israel. So even if you don't know anything, if you're the most secular person in the world, which is how I grew up, um, you still can have this in your ritual and feel that you are part of a chain of the Jewish people. And then Harry Belafonte finds out about Havana Gila, right? So if you're lucky enough to have your song sung by Harry Belafonte as one of his main stays in his repertoire, then, you know, it kind of elevates the song. And he was going around and performing a lot of times to really large Jewish audiences in, in the Catskills and other places uh, in, in, around New York. And then it, you know, it became, he, he sang it at his famous uh, concert that was recorded and the album was put out at Carnegie Hall. And then it just sort of goes into the folk music explosion. And it, it, it goes from there until you get Bob Dylan picking up on that. And in his um, tortured, conflicted relationship with his Judaism, he does this, there's this bootleg copy of him singing Havana Gila, whereas Josh Kuhn, the brilliant musicologist, says he just butchers it, which is an interesting version of Hava as well. (laughs) So one of the funniest things about planning my wedding, and I think a lot of people encounter it, is that all these... Stephanie's getting married next week, by the way. Oh, the impetus for this episode. Thank you. Are you planning on... Are you... or is, Did you have a debate, Hava, yes or no? No, we were immediately like, yes to the horror. Of course, everyone loves it. And so we met with the band who is, you know, completely not Jewish. And yeah. he said, okay, so we're going to start... So so we'll do the horror. We do Hava Nagila, then we do Simon Tove, and then we go into Shalom Aleichem. And I'm like, <laughs> how do you know these songs? Like, to me, it's so funny that now... The, you, a wedding band has to know Havana Gila if you're in operating in these sort of metropolis areas full of Jewish people. If you don't know Havana Gila, you're not going to be able to pay your rent. I mean, it's as simple as that. 
After it became so popular among American Jews and it became a staple of American Jewish uh, uh, rituals, it, it you know it went from Ukraine to YouTube, right? I mean, it just spread all over the world. I mean, in the film, um, there's everything from a Thai drag queen uh, doing it, lots of stuff in, in Ukraine and in Russia, big Christian choirs. I mean, uh, cartoons. Havana Gila is 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 probably the first, you know, viral song, right? I mean, and if you play, and in movies and television, um, which I don't know if you know this, but there have been one or two Jews in those fields. We've heard. Um, heard. Uh, every time that you want to just convey that a character is Jewish, you, you throw in a couple of notes of Havana Gila, right? And then so you can funny. make that association. <laughs> so it's a trope. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nod that this is a Jewish character. Right. Havana so, Gila is to Jewish culture probably what Hello Kitty is to Japanese <laughs> culture. It's a sort of like immediate like, here, look, it's that. The funny thing about the documentary is what it made me realize sort of what you were saying at the beginning, that there's an inherent almost silliness, a release of Havana Gila. You're right. Like you roll your eyes off the horror. But then in thir- 30 seconds, the entire f- a party of people is just like holding hands and making circles like like kind of looking like idiots, but it's this very communal experience that's, I don't even know. So joyful. And, and wait till you're in the middle of that. Um, what a wonderful thing to be surrounded with all of your family and friends, the people who love you dancing in a circle, maybe the only time that everybody will get along for the next, you know, however many years. And what better tradition could you have for a wedding? So most important question, favorite rendition? Connie Francis, hands down. Really? Yeah, it's pretty great. <clears throat> um, and okay, so and also my favorite. Well, I have a, a favorite. Have a funny story and a favorite. Have a moving story. Are you interested in either yeah, of those? We're interested in both. Okay, so the funny story comes from Connie Francis. It's in the film. She says that um, people would always ask her, you know, why are you singing Hava Nagila? You know, because she had done before her her album of Jewish songs. I I think I'm getting this right. She did an album of uh, uh, Italian standards, right? So she's an Italian-American. But she grew up in, a, in a, a neighborhood that was a mixed Italian and Jewish neighborhood. She went to a lot of uh, bar and bat mitzvahs. So she had this growing up. But so she, her standard line, when people asked her why she sang Hava Nagila, they would say, are, are you Jewish? And her response would be, yes, I'm 10% Jewish on my manager's side. <laughs> Which I thought was one of the great but really funny. lines. Okay, so now do you want the sad or... Yeah, sure. No, we'll, we'll, we'll end on a sad we'll note. End up, sure, take us down enough. Yeah, I mean, we're Jewish, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's what happens in Hava, too. It's this very happy song, and then in the middle of it, it has these strange minor chords. So it's like, don't get too happy, right? Because shit's going to happen. But the, the, the moving story I heard was from a survivor uh, that I met in New York, um, and she said that when she, when the war was over, she thought when she straggled back to Budapest, she thought, I'm the last Jew. She thought, everyone's gone. I, I may be the last Jew. So she sort of instinctively went to the huge uh, Doheny synagogue in Budapest. And slowly as the day went on, people started straggling in. Other people had the same instinct until there was about, there were about 15 people at the Doheny synagogue. And they were kind of looking, who are you? How'd you survive? And then they were kind of looking at each other like, how do we mark this moment? And somebody suggested that they sing Havana Gila. And so they did. They got in a circle and they danced the horror and sang Havana Gila. And this was um, their new beginning. Wow. 
Roberta, uh, Roberta Grossman, thank you so much for being here. Um, you guys, our listeners can check out Havana Gila, the movie on Netflix, um, and learn more about, you know, the, the, the most Jewish earworm of all time. <laughs> and we'll be thinking of you when we dance it at Stephanie's wedding. Yes. Have a wonderful wedding. Thank um, you so much. Love. Thanks, Roberta. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. <laughs> Some Mazel Tovs, uh, Leah Leibowitz. My Mazel Tov, uh, this is the annual late August Mazel Tov, goes out to Maddie and all the amazing people at WOMR, Provincetown's finest public radio station. <laughs> Thanks. On 91.3 FM or 92.1 FM in Provincetown. Awesome. Uh, Batsheva Marcus, back in the studio. You have some Mazel Tovs for us? Yeah, you told me I could have more than one. Wait, so you, I'm going to. You deserve, you, mean, you brought few. us bra- vibrators. Many, you can yeah. have as many as you want. <laughs> so, first, I don't know if this is a Mazel Tov, but I really want to do a shout out to the Jewish community in Houston, Houston yep. right now, who's really going through a huge relief effort. And thank you for all of us who can't be there to help. Um, the second one is to a young man named Yona Benjamin, who is starting his second year at Columbia, um, Columbia, the List program. And he's probably your biggest fan. We're going to talk about if I can bring him to that cocktail party. And then um, my third one is to your grandparents, <gasps> Stephanie, because they are the cutest things in the whole world. And I have grandchildren, and I hope I get to go to their weddings. My grandmother's actually wearing the same dress she wore to my bat mitzvah to my wedding. <laughs> Oh, wow. It is the best detail of all. It's like the funniest thing. That is amazing. Yeah. So anyway, please she give got them style. hugs. Yes, that is amazing. Uh, I have two Mazel Tovs. Uh, first of all, um, from a listener, uh, a happy birthday to Alan Perez, uh, Saba Alan, a big shout out to you. And uh, we, we hope that you many, many happy returns to the day. And then on a more personal note, uh, my sister Rachel uh, is newly engaged to Eric, to my yes! future brother-in-law, Eric. Wow. So. Just in time for Mazel our wedding tov. episode. Yeah, just in time for the wedding episode. It's in the air. And um, interestingly, I've just, I hope... I I know on some level that Stephanie and Rachel follow each other on Instagram. I know everything that, about but your whole trip to Martha's Vineyard with your family. It was brought home to me when Stephanie was like recounting episodes from my trip on which Rachel and Eric got engaged. And I was like, how do you know? That? I was like, oh, that's right. Instagram. And I'm just, you know, too old and square for for that. But um, but this is incredibly exciting and a uh, big mazel tov to both of them. Uh, Stefania. First, shouts to Howie Butnick. My dad, his birthday is September 4th. Um, Happy birthday. Yeah, it's amazing. He's like nicely sharing it with us, letting us have. How old is he turning? Because I'm going to say, how? wait, wait, wait. Because let me say, he's one of those clean shaven Q tip Mr. Clean Bald men where you can't tell. Like, he could yeah, be, no, he's timeless. He could be 43 and an early bald and just decide to go full Lex Luthor, or he could be 78. Like, I, you don't know with that guy. He's. Turning 61, right? Yeah. He's born in 56. That's amazing. 61. Yeah. Yes, that's wow. easy math. That's Happy amazing. birthday. Yeah, he's the, he's the man. Okay, my serious Mazel Tov that is going to knock your socks off is to very good friend of the show uh, and former guest Molly Ye, who has graciously agreed to make and decorate the cake for my wedding <gasps> and who will be attending the what? wedding. What? Oh, my yep. God. Oh, I had to tell my. you on air. That is really amazing. <laughs> Nick, her husband, might come. It's sugar beet season. Oh. It's a harvest, but he's going to try to come. Mal- Malier will be there. This is the most exciting thing since you got engaged and the second most exciting thing since she was a guest on our show. Yeah. No, this is amazing. This is top three. And she's going to sit at your table, so. Oh, my God. Probably oh my God. not right next to you, though. Yeah, Mark is reconsidering uh, <laughs> Sid? His, own, his own wife. <laughs> I'm not sure we right? can trust my parents to stay with the kids. Why don't I do this once? <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So we're, yeah, we're keeping it in the family. And 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 another I'll add on Mazel Tov to our cantor Shira Ginsburg, who's actually on the show as well. She's amazing. She's at the East End Temple um, in Gramercy Park. Uh, she it's just like the fun. It's just like a love fest of unorthodox. It's amazing. Dressed by Simon Doonan. <laughs> open bar by Dua Dickinson. Sermon by Dan Savage. <laughs> Vibrator by Vacheva. Amazing. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can write to us. In fact, please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Uh, you can follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. We are on Facebook a lot. Just follow Tablet Magazine there, and we'll just pop up in that feed. Our executive producer is Alyssa Goldstein, and we are also produced, and oh, how we're produced, by Shira Tlushkin. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Karen Breutman of the Martha's Vineyard Hebrew Center. I didn't make it there this time, but next time I'm going to go to the MVHC and, 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 and meet me some Rabbi Karen Breutman. Kosher slaughtering is by Steve Mnuchin's wife. We record at Argo Studios, whose presidential pardon is coming soon. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.